Dr. Gabramate has stated, the origin of the word trauma is the Greek for wound. Trauma is a wound. How I think about it is that if I wounded you, if I cut your flesh, the healing would involve scar tissue forming. If the wound was great enough, you'd get a big scar and it would be without nerve endings so you wouldn't feel and it would be much less flexible than your normal tissue. Trauma is when there is a loss of feeling and there is a reduced flexibility in responding to the world. This is a response to the wound. Trauma is not what happened to you, it's what happens inside you as a result of what happened to you. Today's podcast topic is trauma and the costly adverse outcomes for those living homeless. Hello, we're really grateful that you spend your time listening to our podcast, which is entitled The Stampede City Sisters Community Talks, because people are dying and these are relevant and important topics. This conversation is our fifth episode and the final one from the series regarding issues impacting those living homeless with mental health concerns and addiction. Sister Baradol has informed me that I have stated this was our final episode before, but for me, it's really important that I address all aspects of those living with mental health concerns and addictions, those who are vulnerably housed and homeless, and I wanted to ensure that we included as much information as possible to address all and as many issues as we could that impact the lives of those living homeless. During our episode, today we'll talk about trauma and bring forward information regarding the types of trauma, symptoms, definitions of various traumas, possible root causes, and the life-altering effects from trauma, adverse childhood experiences, high-risk behavior, addiction, challenging situations, and the difficult emotions for people, especially those impacted by homelessness. Today's podcast topic is for anyone who's interested in acquiring some knowledge or a deeper understanding regarding mental health, trauma, addiction, and the possible different therapeutic methods and options that could be used to move forward in wellness, healing, and stability. My guest and I will speak to how unresolved trauma continues to affect the lives of anyone affected by trauma. But of course, our focus will be on those living unhoused or vulnerably housed. It's really important for me to state, while this will be the majority of what we address today, there's also conversations about hope. Hope is important, empowerment, self-efficiency, strength-based approaches, and highlighting the various ways people demonstrate resiliency and continue to strive for a better life outside of the one they're experiencing now. Hi there, I'm Sister Jackalicious. And I am your ever-so-curious, genderqueer host for this podcast, and it has been an honor to be so. I'd like to take this moment to acknowledge my white privilege and the existence of inequity and the disadvantage that Black, Indigenous, and Asians experience in this Canadian state. These inequities have afforded me a lifetime of privilege and enjoyment from unearned benefits and rights. I also understand that this is a continual gain to me from systematic racism and oppression that white privilege creates. I was born in Ottawa, Ontario, 
which is the traditional unceded territories of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people. I would love once again to give a shout out to Black Chat Podcast in Vancouver for the idea of doing a land acknowledgement for your birthplace. Our series of podcasts are proudly produced by Sister Baradol, a sister of the Abbey of the Long Cedar Canoe of the Vancouver Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. On our podcast, we do a land acknowledgement to give back a sense of identity by honoring the original caretakers of the land we live on. I am painfully aware of the structured violence, the ongoing oppression from colonialism, and the trauma that is intergenerational for the Indigenous people in this Canadian state. It is with reverence, therefore, that I do a land acknowledgement for the First Nations Treaty 7 people of Turtle Island. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live on the stolen lands of Turtle Island on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 First Nations. The Picani First Nations, the Sisika First Nations, the Kainai First Nations, the Stony Nakoda First Nations, and the Tutsina First Nations. I would like to also acknowledge the ancestral territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy and the home of Métis Region 3. This podcast was recorded via Skype in Calgary and in the beautiful Comox Valley of Vancouver Island with my dear friend, Montana Hancox. On our podcast, we like our guests to introduce themselves so we don't miss any of the juicy parts of their story. It really is an incredible joy to be able to do this episode with a darling of a friend, Montana Hancock. And later in the episode, we'll be joined by our bestie, Lisa Shaw. Montana, can you please tell us more about who you are and how you move through the world? I sure can. Hi, Jackie. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I was uh, born in Duncan, B.C., so... Um, to do an uh, acknowledgement of the place I was born. Duncan is about two hours south of where I currently live in the Comox Valley, but Duncan is situated in the Cowichan Valley. So this is the traditional lands uh, and unceded territory of the seven traditional villages of the Cowichan tribes. Uh, the Cowichan tribes are the single largest First Nation uh, band in BC. But currently I'm speaking to you from the Comox Valley, where I currently live and I work. And so as a white settler who conducts business on these unceded traditional territory of the Comox First Nation, I like to do so with gratitude for the land and their use. And I think that just as it's important to acknowledge the original caretakers of these lands, that it is also important that I respect the land um, that I am kind of granted the ability to operate my business on. And I, I do that by offering, um, making a community offering. So providing a space, an inclusive space that is committed to healing and that recognizes and acknowledges local struggles. Um, so your question about how I like to move through the world, uh, that's a funny one. Uh, I think of Thomas King because I like stories and I like to move through the world with a smile and open ears and a full heart. And uh, Thomas King said, for once a story is told, it cannot be called back. So I also like to move through the world 
with a good story. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the love of your life? Who's the love of your life? My dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> my dog is Wilbur, and he is absolutely the love of my life. The, yeah, he gives me everything I ever wanted and more. Uh, he's a seven-year-old now, English bulldog, with a lot of um, personality problems. <laughs> no, he has got a good character to him. He's spoiled rotten, and I love him. Well, Montana, thank you for being here with us and sharing this space, this time. And we, we know we both do this with gratitude today. And especially, I'm, I'm really happy to be able to bring this podcast to people because of your expertise or your knowledge. Maybe it's not expertise. No one is an expert in anything, I don't think, regarding trauma and the social issues that can lead to homelessness, mental health and addiction and the therapeutic options that you bring forward to folks. We think this podcast topic today is really timely. It's important, especially with the entire population of this planet experiencing a collective trauma from COVID-19 and the world events surrounding some of the political uprising and the racism that is still uh, very prevalent in the world. And we know that income inequity is the root cause of so many problems. And COVID-19 has made this a reality uh, for a lot of folks, but it's also made it a mainstream knowledge base where most folks weren't aware of how poverty impacts uh, most of the most of the people living on our on our planet. Hopefully soon though, all of us can begin to move forward on a healing path and change how we move throughout our lives and how we engage and care for the most marginalized and vulnerable people. Montana, mm -hmm. you and I are aware that for some of the individuals that we both journey alongside with, they don't have the ability to cope or to manage the stressors that come about because of the isolation, the economic burden during COVID-19. These recent events are another layer of trauma pain and adversity for them, especially when we consider their economic status, extreme poverty, the challenges of living homeless or vulnerably housed, and the endless barriers they endure trying to gain access to services, such as what you do, mental health care, and supporting with addiction. And I think today it should also be noted, when services are finally brought forth to individuals with mental health care, and with addictions for those who could be vulnerably housed or homeless, the care practitioner or therapist must also be prepared as well to address all realistic concerns regarding locating and securing necessary resources to live. Without having the essentials or the very basics for living, people cannot fully address and work towards mental health and wellness. When we're thinking about this, Montana, and the factors that we just spoke of, what what kind of things can you think about for people living with mental health issues, economic hardships, vulnerably housed, homeless? There's barriers that come up to getting care. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to some of the ways or some of the me mechanisms that have been put into place in your work to make mental health care more accessible for the people that you work with? Mm -hmm. I can talk about that. Um, and also would like to think about you know, what you were saying about the COVID-19 epidemic, I, I often think, and I think for most of us that work in the, in the, um, work in this kind of, uh, in these kind of populations with these issues and economic struggles, um, 
and vulnerable people and marginalized people, where were the mental health experts standing on the front of the stage with the medical experts talking about how this would become an issue that we will be now, um, you know, involved in for probably the next decade, uh, the mental health um, issues that we were, that are just starting to arise now are, yeah. I'll, I'll I think it's going to be intergenerational. <laughs> I think for, for children, uh, for a lot of people, this will be an intergenerational issue. Yeah, it, it's going to be, if, it, if it's not already. Um, so in response to your question about one of the places that I work is nonprofit. So providing government subsidized counseling services, and this is by donation, which is really cool because if you think about mental health um, care and how much good mental health care costs, without benefits, it's incredibly hard to um, have people have absolutely no money and then not access to quality mental health care that's specified to trauma. Uh, and so, yeah, these people are, are, you know, there might be a wait list, but we uh, have people come in that have no income whatsoever, and they paid by donation. And the donation is sometimes for people with low income, a dollar. So the government subsidizes the rest and then they get donations. Um, that's been really eye-opening for me to see how systems can operate on such low levels of, of income and how hard people work to get that money. Um, this place that I work also accesses services such as uh, victims of violence who fund some of the programs that we have. We have a, a men's program where men are victims uh, of abuse or violence and they come in um, with a very reduced rate as well. Uh, and then we have a private program as well that, that has a very low cost in comparison to what most of the costs would be going private. Um, and then on the island here, we have the First Nations Health Authority, which has an, an incredible, it's an incredible resource for people to use who are First Nations, um, Indigenous people of, of Vancouver Island who can access, well, actually First Nations is throughout BC, but they can access uh, services, mental health through there. Um, and then I use that in my private practice as well. So most of the people in my private practice come through funding through FNHA and through uh, Veterans Affairs uh, as well. And yeah, there are lots of little things out there that have been put in place to address the, the needs of mental health right now. I think it's amazing that people can do it by donation. Tank and I, Stasha and I, when we first talked in the beginning, first two podcasts of the episode of the um, podcast episodes, we had mentioned that folks are are really economically stressed, and they're making the decision: Do I buy groceries or do I not pay for the electrical bill? So people making a one dollar donation to get mental health care. Is probably all they can all they can manage, and what are they not? What are they missing out on that day? So when you think of a seven dollar Starbucks coffee that you're enjoying right now, someone had to spend a dollar to get the the vital mental health right. care so that they can get right. through the next half an hour that it takes you to drink your seven dollar Starbucks. So I'm really happy That's to hear really that there's point. yeah. That's a really good point to think about. Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm really excited to hear that there's so many options and so so much um, so much going on for veterans and for our First Nations Indigenous folks in in Vancouver. That's that's beautiful. Yeah. Can you? I guess I should you, also mention that yeah. there is a youth youth program as well, which I see a lot of of people through. And so there's 
there are quite a few options for youth as well. Youth are struggling through this pandemic a lot. Um, First Nations Health Authority also provides um, provides funding for youth to get counseling. And I, uh, with the amount of, um, I don't know if, uh, I don't know the statistics there, but Campbell Rivers recently had um, an increase in in child uh, suicide. So yeah, it's been, it's been pretty hard on our, on our youth and uh, that's a whole other topic, but I'm very happy and proud and humbled to be able to work with uh, youth, so many youth over here uh, on the island. It's, it brings me both sadness and just overwhelmingly, um, I feel overwhelmingly happy that people are actually wanting to come as youth. It's amazing. That is awesome. And Jody was talking about the same thing in our Indigenous podcast, which was our last one about the struggles of First Nations, uh, especially living on reserves and the limited incomes and uh, just this, the lack of service available to them. So it is a it is a struggle, and I'm glad we're bringing this topic forward today. Montana, when you meet a new client that has experienced so much trauma and adversity in life, where do you start? How do you begin the process? That's a fun question <laughs> for me. <laughs> uh, so I typically I start by acknowledging the courage that it's taken for them to have walked in that room. Even for people who have had counseling, perhaps people who have been in and out of services their whole life, even if it's their first time, it still takes courage. It takes courage. People sometimes are exhausted of telling the story. Sometimes people are terrified of telling the story. But no matter what and no matter who it is, it still takes a tremendous amount of courage to make that call and come and get some help. So that's my acknowledgement is always thank you. I'm honored that they've decided to share their story with me. And even if they don't share the story with me, I'm honored that they've come to try. I don't know anything about this person. This person knows nothing to me, but I think it's just incredibly, uh, there's something magical about being able to sit in a room with a stranger and tell them what all that you've been up against in life. Um, and I like to make sure that there is some sort of, uh, power equalization. So I'm not the expert in the room. They are the expert in their own lives. Whoever Thank you. I so believe yeah. that. I yeah. believe that. Yeah. And uh, one of the little things that I like to do is because, well, in because I work for um, a nonprofit, there's kind of policies in place that we have to start out with paperwork and that kind of thing. And so in my first session, I always have a clipboard with the paperwork I have to get through. And then I tell them, this is the very, very last time you're going to see me with a clipboard. Because I'm not a clipboard therapist. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to draw, I'm going to write, I'm going to do all sorts of things, but I'm not going to use a clipboard. And sometimes that helps, right? This is not a, this is not something where they need to look at me as somebody who is any kind of expert. Because I'm not in that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's a nice way to come in and approach things, and it seems very relaxing. I know I, my whole body energy just kind of softened a little bit when you were talking. <laughs> so when you think about trauma, what does the word trauma invoke for you? I thought about this question probably too much because I like to think <laughs> of, I like to think of the Malcolm Gladwell wrote a really good book called Blink, and he talked about your initial reaction to like, something as being your your primal 
It's like when they tell you to go take a test, a multi multi choice, multiple choice test, and you know the answer. You look at the answer, and you know it's the answer, and then you second guess yourself. All these thoughts start coming in, and so when I read that question, I was like, "Oh, what does it invoke for me?" My initial response to trauma, when I really thought about that concept, is healing. That was it's a simultaneous thing for me. And it's probably because of the work that I do. Um, it doesn't mean that I think that everyone with trauma can be healed. It just means that there is the potential for healing. So uh, I feel like that's something that perhaps I'm able to uh, create safe space for people to, to do that healing. Um, but I also think about it, I, I suppose I think about how the world it, the word itself does not capture, capture the complexity of any person or group's experience of it um, because there are so many layers to trauma. And, you know, if you look at Indigenous healing philosophies based on wellness models, they don't really, our medical models don't capture the complexities of trauma and intergenerational trauma. Um, yeah. So it, I guess we don't really look at the broad spectrum of trauma all the time. I think this work has gotten a lot better, but sometimes when we, when we add, we also subtract. So we add all these definitions and the terminology. And so uh, I kind of want to just, when I was thinking about the question, I wanted to jump back and say, how does that word make me feel? And so for me, because I am a person now that, you know, has moved through my own trauma with help with friends with beautiful people in my life and therapists and I am at a place with trauma personally where I can look at that simultaneously now and offer that to others so that's kind of what that word speaks to me as, mm -hmm. yeah and I think when when um you know when I've asked people what does it what does trauma invoke for you and they always say well you know, I've had a lot of trauma, but it pisses me off when someone says, well, your trauma is not as big as my trauma. And we're not trumping each other here on our traumas. There's no little T and big T trauma. Trauma's trauma, no matter if it's, uh, you know, whatever impacts you as trauma, it doesn't matter if it's a small little incident in your life or a major incident in your life. If you're holding it and it's wounding you, it's trauma. And we need yeah. to respect that. Yeah. I agree with that, and I think youth too is very interesting. When I get the, I get the, uh, I get a very broad spectrum of, of generations that I work with. You know, um, people in their senior years, um, adults, young adults, teens, and youth. So, definitely, trauma has changed in the way we view what you growing up in. You know, I know your story. So, your story of traumas than say a, somebody that I see here their trauma is different. Like the, the generationally, it's completely changed for some people. So it's just so complex. There's no real definition for it, in my opinion. Every, it's very individual and it's collectivist. And I think the other thing with trauma is people, all those statistics would tell us it's not necessarily so, but people are more willing, I think, to talk about their wounding and more willing to talk about what's happening for them at different stages in their life. So let's go to what right. are the common responses and symptoms of trauma? Um, okay, so like from a, you know, from a medical, I'll take a medical model kind sure. of view on this. Um, <clears throat> so common symptoms would be, there's kind of four. So physical reactions, 
uh, nervous energy, jitter, energy, jitters, muscle tension, stomach issues, rapid heart, dizziness, lack of energy. And then we have mental reactions. So those would be changes in the way you think about yourself um, or about other people. It can convolute, you know, our thought process, heightened awareness of surroundings. Uh, so we get sensitive to where we are and who we're around. Uh, we can also have lessened awareness, um, concentration issues, images, nightmares that are intrusive. Uh, and then we have emotional reactions such as fear, inability to stay safe, uh, sadness, grief, depression, guilt, anger, numbness. And then we have behavioral reactions, which are some be withdrawn or isolated from others, become really easily startled, uh, aggressive, change in eating habits. So we see sometimes um, disordered eating, uh, restlessness, and even um, sexual activity can be decreased or decreased or increased. Yeah. So those are that's kind of in a nutshell. That's what kind of the medical model looks at as trauma or a trauma. Mm -hmm. And in the three types of trauma, so the uh, three types of trauma are acute trauma, so that's like a single distressing event, such as an incident, um, a rape, assault, natural disaster. Uh, and then there's chronic trauma, where a person is exposed to multiple long-term uh, long and prolonged distressing traumatic events over an extended period of time. Something like domestic violence would be a good example. Mm -hmm. And complex trauma, which is exposure to varied and multiple traumatic events or experiences. Mm -hmm. So over childhood, right? Right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, part of all of our experiences are related to complex trauma. I'm not sure that anyone can come through this life, through childhood especially, uh, without some form of trauma. What is intergenerational trauma? Can you address that for us? Explain it to us. I can explain what I, my limited knowledge of intergenerational trauma. Um, as someone who, uh, I do have, have part of my family is uh, indigenous. So um, there is some there. I don't have, what I'm trying to say is I don't really have the experience of intergenerational trauma to any degree by comparison of um, our Indigenous communities in Canada. Um, <clears throat> but what I can do is explain my knowledge around what Indigenous authors have described this as. Perfect. Um, like uh, Renee Linklater, she writes that it is um, a blood memory, the collection of memories that we're born with. Um, intergenerational and multi-generational trauma, trauma are cumulative emotional and psychological wounding over time and that's transmitted generationally so I guess to um, discuss multiple types of trauma we need to look at it from a multi-generational or an intergenerational way where we can try and understand its current it has current ancestral historical individual or collective so there are many ways to describe that kind of trauma. Um, I'm reminded of Nathan Kellerman's genetic research for uh, transmission. I think you mentioned that transmission of Holocaust trauma. That's right. Yeah, that parents transmit trauma to the child through uh, a chemical process in the brain. 
So in Canada, we see this occur through colonial systems that are still in place, and they're continuing these cycles without adequate address of the current situation. And this is how intergenerational trauma, multi-generational trauma continues um, in this country and in many countries all over the world. Montana, is intergenerational trauma what you see mostly at work? What I work mostly with? Like when people come in, is uh, that no? Is that their underlying <laughs> issues? Answer it shortly. No, I. That's not something that I start with. So, you know, I don't assume that anybody comes in with intergenerational trauma. Um, I meet the person where they're at and what their struggles are. Um, you know, we do talk about family. We talk about struggles. We talk about what that's looked like for them. How um, perhaps. Uh, they've had to navigate through life with those struggles. And if that comes up as something that that the person um, wants to discuss, then they discuss it with me. But again, I'm not the expert in intergenerational trauma. I don't have it. I might have some knowledge about what that might look like in terms of how it's been defined. Um, what I have read about the impacts of inter intergenerational trauma. However, it's not something that I uh, personally have, have um, experienced. So for me, it's more of a, if that does come up with the people that I work with, um, you know, I, I encourage the storytelling of that and how it feels, what it looks like, what, what are their knowledge of it? Does that term even fit with them? Right. So I'll just uh, review a little bit, and I love the, I can't remember her name right off the top of my head, but I love the Indigenous uh, author that you had quoted. I like her definition. So a definition also of intergenerational trauma, when it happens to in, uh, impact an entire group or an entire community of individuals, it's referred to as collective trauma because there's an affiliation, as you had said, or a specific identity to that, like the genocide of the Indigenous people in the Canadian state, the transatlantic slave trade, and the Holocaust, which you also mentioned. There is a prolonged, horrific act that demonstrates that intergenerational trauma is what happened in the past, what is happening in the present, and what will continue to happen. And we still see lots of issues with racism and oppression here in the Canadian state. So it is continuing. Even if you have never experienced the trauma, it is the psychological remnant, remnant sorry, the history of the wounding, the distress generation after generation live with. And this can play out in the form of addiction, mental health issues, and can lead to living in extreme poverty and the experience of living unhoused. Let's mm -hmm. talk, Montana, about PTSD. Can you please tell us what that is or what your knowledge of that is? I like your point there, Jackie, first that, yeah, um, what is happening in the present. I once had uh, my Indigenous knowledge, one of my professors, um, Les Jerome uh, from the University of Calgary. I loved him. Had said, yeah, he said, he said uh, I'm not laughing because of what he said, actually, but he put it, it was just so perfect. Uh, this idea of, how can we get over what's still happening? Because, you know, oftentimes you hear that statement from people who are kind of ignorant to the, the things that are going on uh, right in our own country. And how can we get over what's still happening is a, a very nice way of putting that. Yeah. 
Um, and so to your question about PTSD, uh, the short version, the short medical version, um, it's a mental health condition that occurs either after witnessing or experiencing a terrifying event. Uh, witnessing is a really kind of an interesting thing to people often think of PTSD as something that is experienced. But, um, you know, in, in my work, we even work with people who have been attacked by animals or have witnessed a person being attacked by animals. We look at uh, people that have had um, wit been witness to accidents, um, you know, work safe DC. We work with people who have uh, worked as EMS or police officers. Um, and also, of course, veterans. So there are many ways, different ways in which a person's symptoms can be triggered. Uh, sometimes PTSD symptoms decrease over time on their own, but certainly for people who are diagnosed with PTSD, specific types of therapy can be really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. So PTSD is short for what? Post-traumatic stress disorder. Did I not Thank say you. that? <laughs> <laughs> Can you describe the different types of therapy options that people might be able to access that are survivors of trauma that have PTSD? There are so many therapeutic interventions now that can help people uh, that suffer from PTSD. Trauma is becoming uh, more and more of a, a thing that people are recognizing as something that's very pervasive. Um, so most of the kind of known treatments uh, fall under the umbrella of, umbrella of cognitive behavioral therapy. And that aim is to change the thought patterns that are causing the disruption in your life. Um, I think currently the most widely used are CPT, which is cognitive processing therapy, uh, EMDR, uh, which is eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing, um, and then prolonged exposure therapy. And those are just to name a few, but I use the narrative approach in my practice. And I want to talk about the joy you're having right now of connecting to others through that therapeutic modality. Tell us about narrative therapy. I've always really loved a good story, as I've said before. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> so essentially, uh, we all have a story. We all have a story that we tell about ourselves. And for some people, we, we tell the story of who we are, where we've been, what we've done. And for some people who have come up uh, come from a lot of adversity and are experiencing adversity daily, their stories that can, always, can often be quite problem-saturated. They can sometimes be told with a lot of shame and guilt. And so my approach with narrative therapy is kind of this radical idea that perhaps we can tell these stories in ways that empower us, even if they're difficult to tell. So when you're th thinking about um, a person's coming in and having conversations around their story can you be a little bit more specific about how how do you create new meaning for someone through that experience using narrative therapy so if someone's coming in with shame and guilt attached to whatever's occurred for them mm -hmm. how do you create new meaning out of that experience for them how do you change that i we can't change the story that's but right we can change the feelings that we have about it and that what the aim is to do essentially. So uh, narrative therapy was created by David Epstein and Michael White from Australia. And they kind of posited this new discourse that they view a person as separate from their problem or their disease. So in trauma, that works as viewing trauma as something that happened to you, but it isn't you. That's not you. 
yes, here are some of your experiences to some, but also we can change the feelings behind what those experiences did uh, in your body and to your mind, in your mind. In my work, externalizing the stigma, the ideas, the problematic language, and the symptoms of trauma can create this radical shift in perspective where people are then meant to, or implored to, I guess, approach kind of these ideas that most of them have been implanted. The, the dialogue around it, the stigma around it, the idea that you can't move through it, those ideas, those um, symptoms are externalized. So the idea of guilt or shame, taking those, what do they feel like, bringing them outside of you, looking at them and telling them what to do, <laughs> what they're good for, where did they come from, who, are, who is this, what is guilt, um, really giving it some life outside of you so that you can look at it objectively. When you first started talking with me, you said that you don't necessarily have a clipboard, that you will be doing some writing and drawing. Can you explain that a little bit more? So you're someone's having a conversation with you. How are you relaying your expertise to help them pull out that trauma, to help them find shame and guilt, to look at it, put it back in a place that's healthy? I don't want to use actually healthy is not a good to change the way that they view that. What are you doing when you say you're writing and you're taking your drawing pictures? Mm -hmm. I'm listening. You're listening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm really hearing what they're saying. And the way that I really hear what they say is my writing in session, my writing in my time with people is spent only writing things that they say. So I will not sit there with a piece of paper and write down things that I'm thinking about them. And this is very open work. So I talk to them about how I do this. I'll never write down anything I think about you on this piece of paper. It is actually just things that you say that strike me or move me or things I want to ask you about. That does many things for me and the person I'm sitting with because, A, it really allows them to know that I'm hearing them and listening to their story. That things that they're saying, I'm learning from, and I'm very open about that too. And what the writing does for me uh, later as I, as I reflect on the session is it allows me to potentially come up with something to write for them. So I use story, I use maybe write them a story, maybe write them a letter, maybe write them a poem, and then I read it back to them at their next session. And That's so, beautiful. That is yeah. really active, engaging listening at like an expert level. Because <laughs> <laughs> people don't reference. really listen. Yeah. They, they don't really, really listen with the intent to hear people. It is, it is an art, right? We're in, a, in a, a world that's very instant and busy. We don't call people anymore. We send them a quick, uh, a quick text. I try when I send people texts to say hello to everybody, but sometimes I'll just get a text like, not even like, hey, Jack, how you doing? Just, hey, this is going on. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, step up. Hello. Yeah. Like yeah. We forgot how to greet each other and take a moment to be present with each other, even if it's through a message. And it starts with me with greeting someone. So I, I, I think that's a really beautiful way to sit with someone and, and hear, hear what's going on with their life and then reflecting that back. Because sometimes we say things and we don't even know that in our pain that we've said it. And it might be a key moment that can pull on a, on a strength or a resiliency, right? Yeah. And that's kind of the exact, the exact purpose of that. So I think uh, in, in sessions, sometimes, I mean, I can't remember what I said five minutes ago. So in sessions, people often will, it, it's a chance for them to get all they need to say out. When I take the words that they say, 
afterward and construct them into some sort of poem or I don't know, whatever, usually a poem and read it back to them. Often people are quite, the, the reactions and the responses are, are really interesting. Uh, sometimes people are very moved. Uh, I can't believe I said that. Or, you know, they, they always also have the ability to strike it out. So before I read it and I say, if this doesn't actually, actually capture what you said, feel, know, we're gonna rip this piece of paper up and you'll never have to see it again. This is all them. This has nothing to do with me. I am not uh, in, I do not go in with any intention to fix. Like it's, it's really just listening. Yeah, we're going to talk about fixing people later because it's a very um, it's a very power imbalance controlled word. When people are moving forward with constant adversity, so some of the folks we see, it's just one layer after another, and there's tons of fragmented services. And we you talk beautifully about that stigma piece. How do you help people return to self a little bit? So you've kind of described that. How many how many sessions could it take, or do it, or is it a lifelong process for lots of people before they really return to to a center where they're happy with themselves? I can't really give that a time limit. I mm-hmm. it's so different for every person, and I kind of think that that is to be determined collaboratively. Mm-hmm. I check in with the people that I see. I know in one of my in my nonprofit work we offer uh, 12 to 24 sessions just because it is government funded. So there is a limit on that. I tend to be on the side of, man, I really want to keep seeing this person. So I'm going to ask for an extension because I don't (laughs) think they're ready yet. And, you know, like sometimes that happens, but I think it's really, really, really up to the individual and how they're, how they're progressing, how they see themselves as progressing. Are they feeling better? Are they wanting to move to, you know, coming less, maybe just doing a check-in once in a while. I, I just, I don't really know how to answer that question because it's just so individual, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the point I'm trying to get at. It's not like, it's not like you come for two, ses- two sessions and um, maybe people, the work is done in two sessions. Maybe they just need yeah. to check in. And, and sometimes, and I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of a few of the folks I've worked with over my lifetime, that the pain and the wounding is is so deep it's so buried and it and it comes possibly with an individual who's living with an intellectual disability an addiction um that's you know faced abandonment sexual abuse you know poverty uh, all kinds of different layers that it may take a lifetime so i guess what i'm trying to to pull out from you is that it is a process and it is on people's time and it could take a long time, but it sounds like you're invested in hearing whatever needs to be said over and over and over again, and people will get there when they get there. Yeah, and that's not to say that we don't do hard work together. Right. But like, to me, therapy is a collaborative effort. I need to do the work, and they need to do the work, and often I learn a lot more. I, lo- I learn so much in working with, with an individual uh, I like to sometimes tell them the things that, so there's kind of this uh, idea in narrative therapy that we did this thing called outsider witnessing. Now, I haven't practiced this since I've been with the, the uh, narrative collective in Calgary. Shout out to them. They taught me so much. Love them all. Love you guys if you're listening. <laughs> um, uh, outsider witnessing. So kind of 
listening with the intent of of uh, something they said, that something the person said that that moved me, how it moved me, and how I might carry that into my work, my practice, my life. So that's a part of empowering a person that is saying like, maybe you're maybe you're here for me to help you, but you've also given me a gift in which I can help others. So I'm, you know taking this for you or, or taking this, asking you to get this to me, can I move this word into somebody else's life? It's really quite neat. It's beautiful. So we have Lisa is joining us right now. So hello, Lisa. Hello, ladies. Hi, Lisa. Hi. So Lisa's going to introduce herself real quick here, short, and then she'll come back and introduce a little bit later on. Hi, I'm Lisa. Uh, I will fully introduce myself a bit later. Uh, but for now, I just wanted to provide a few statistics from the Canadian Association of Mental Health and their report on mental illness and addiction facts and stats. So I think it's important that people realize that uh, in any given year, one in five Canadians experience a mental health or addiction problem. And those problems are on a, a wide spectrum, as you guys have talked about. By the time Canadians reach 40 years of age, one in two have or have had a mental illness. About 4,000 Canadians per year die by suicide, an average of almost 11 deaths by a suicide a day. It affects people of all ages and all backgrounds. We'll talk more about that later. 70% of mental health problems have their onset during childhood or adolescence. Young people aged 15 to 24 are more likely to experience mental illness and or substance use disorder than any other age group. Men have higher rates of addiction than women, while women have higher rates of mood and anxiety disorders. People with mental illness are twice as likely to have a substance use pro problem. At least 20% of people with a mental illness have co-occurring substance use problems. For people with schizophrenia, the number may be as high as 50% people trying to medicate their, their suffering. Canadians in the lowest income group are three to four times more likely than those in the higher income group to report poor to fair mental health. Individuals with mental health illnesses are much less likely to be employed and unemployment rates are as high as 70% to 90% for people with the most severe mental illnesses. Studies in various Canadian cities indicate that between 23% and 67%, that's a pretty big variance, of homeless people report having a mental illness. Mental illness can cut 10 to 20 years from a person's life expectancy. And just 50% of Canadians, 50% would tell a friend or a coworker that they have a family member with a mental illness, compared to 72% who would disclose a diagnosis of cancer and 68% who would talk about a family member having diabetes. Gabor Mate is quoted as stating that our political and social systems don't, don't support fundamental human needs, which affects our ability to deal with traumatic events. We're all in this together and mental health issues and addiction touch all of our lives at some point. Montana, why does trauma increase the likelihood of substance use and or abuse? So we see this a lot because 
as there is for most people that uh, suffer from trauma, there is a lack of understanding, there's a lack of resources, there's racism that exists, there's prejudice that exists uh, for those that experience trauma, especially at a young age. So I think for a lot of people, um, they attempt to self-medicate in order to cope with the dysregulation and stress responses to trauma. That's kind of the short answer. That is a, a complex question that has, a, has many complex answers. But in a nutshell, I mean, this is a coping response in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Um, and uh, the result of, of colonization, the result of, of many years of um, abuse and many years of coping or trying to. Trying to. My boys call it numbing the pain, going on the deck to numb the pain. Yep. Toxic stress has become a buzzword. Can you explain what it is? What is toxic stress? You said it's become a buzzword, but I'm, how has it become a buzzword? Like in, I say that like the, the community that you serve or work with, is that a buzzword there? It is. It's a buzzword. Okay. Everybody talks about everybody's toxic stress. This environment's toxic. My life is toxic. Going to work, driving to work is toxic. This person's toxic. You know, the toxic stress has become a buzzword. But it's when I, I kind of giggled when I said buzzword, because this isn't anything new to us. Toxicity has been around for a long time. But I want you to kind of address the seriousness of toxic stress because we take away when we say, oh, my gosh, this is such a toxic environment. We take away from people that are actually experiencing toxic stress. Right. When we talk about, oh, you know, I broke a nail, the trauma of that. It's like, oh, gosh, like we we throw around um, words that are that have a lot of context and meaning to people. And we we dismiss we uh, dismiss them. Right. We diminish them. So talk a little bit about toxic stress. I'm kind of I, I'm kind of smiling here because I also work with teens, and so <laughs> generationally, this me this the word the meaning of this word has completely changed. So uh, there's you know, ugh, he's toxic, or I'm feeling super toxic right now. So those are words that you know younger generations, and I must say, including myself, use to like talk about a situation that's not optimal. And so when we're looking at that in comparison with like real definitions of toxic stress, toxic stress, we're looking at um, more of when you're a youth and you experience strong, frequent or prolonged adversity, such as physical or emotional abuse, neglect, uh, caregiver substance abuse, mental illness, exposure to violence, um, accumulated burden of family economic hardship, and that all being said without adequate adult support. So those, that's, impor that's an important distinction between this environment is toxic or my work environment is toxic because they get me to do so much. Which, yeah. I mean, we've all worked in toxic work environments and we've called them toxic, but toxic stress is a little bit different uh, when we look at it medically, yeah. Okay, thank you for answering that. Yeah. This is this is a group of people that the three of us, we all met working at the Calgary Scope Society. To shout out to the beautiful people uh, that we worked with there. We've all had the journey with people who have 
live with intellectual disabilities who are neurodivergent and experience mental health and addictions. And sadly, all three of us have witnessed the common practice of overprescribing medication in a response to folks working through trauma and acting out their harm and their wounding. This has always been very alarming to us, how we over-medicate and use behavior modification programs, restrictive practices, people can't get a butter knife because once they cut themselves with it. Instead of effectively teaching individuals who live with disabilities ways to cope and heal with and from their lived experience that they have endured, what have you learned, Montana, from the journeys? Because you've spoken a little bit about when people come into your practice, you carry forward some kind of gift that they've brought to your practice. What have you learned? What gifts have you taken with you from your journeys with this population that you use in your practice today? Number one, humor. <laughs> Number absolute one, as much as we feel down, out, sad, I, I am just always like overwhelmed with the ways that people have been shut down, put down, traumatized, and are still able to crack a joke. And that, sometimes it always, almost brings me to tears. Actually, Lisa Shaw and I had a good one last night. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> Can we share it? <laughs> oh, there's just, yeah. I quite honestly, I've learned more from the people that I've been honored to work with throughout the years than I have by any book or paper. True or, that. Like, holy smokes, have they taught me a lot. And I mean, Jackie, you were a part of that. I was 16 or 15 when I met you and, you know, <laughs> yeah. shaving one of the persons that we worked with heads with a big razor in the front yard and just having fun and, you know, learning to enjoy life with the people that we work with. Now that was a different time. Of course, I'm in a different capacity now, but what I, what I take with me is that sense of joyfulness and, you know, no matter how difficult it might be to be in a place of joy, especially now since we're in COVID and, and everything else, it is just, it's wonderful to see sparks of it. It's wonderful to get people laughing. Um, some of the teens I have, there's this, in my practice, um, especially with trauma work, which is quite heavy, especially when I'm working with teens mostly, um, I have uh, I have this thing where I will never send them home upset because they have to go back to their parents. So I will spend the last 15 minutes of each session um, really lightening it. So we might talk about something about boys or girls or whoever they might want to talk about, make jokes about it gossip, whatever that is, just to take the load off, right? There's always something funny you can find. Um, I've learned that the more I learn, the less I know. You had mentioned about over-medicating people, and I always go back to this idea that we're medicating, are we medicating people to make them feel better, or are we medicating them to make us more comfortable with their behaviors? And I think that that says a lot about the things that we'd, we'd kind of seen over the decades that we worked uh, with, with people uh, with intellectual disabilities. And um, the more that we operate under this rouse of client choice, as long as it keeps them safe, the more complacent we become with the rights being taken away. So in my conversations with people now, I certainly try my best to collaboratively, collaboratively, I can't say that word, collaboratively <laughs> discover uh, how and why they've come to believe certain things about themselves and whether those things have been 
um, imposed upon them by medical systems or people or, you know, um, the stigmatization of, of who they are and what they are. Uh, perhaps they've never even thought of these things as problematic in terms of having a choice over those words, over those stigmas. And they do, they have choice. And again, that's radically changing the discourse around it and giving new meaning behind the labels that they've been given. And I uh, right now want to give a, a shout out to some of my heroes that have been in the the, uh, the forefront of the disability social justice movement. So a shout out to Debbie Reed, Denise Young, and Colleen Houston. Uh, I think those uh, three women have been absolute uh, foot warriors for for this population and have uh, taken a back seat and, and given folks the opportunity to lead and, and to envision the life that they wanted. So a big shout out to them. It is a pleasure to have Lisa Shaw, who has been a cherished friend for over 25 plus years, join us for this conversation. Welcome, Lisa. Lisa, can you share with us who you are, how you move through the world, and tell us a little bit about the history of this beautiful house we're living, or well, you're living in, I'm not living in it, but uh, that we're doing our podcast in today. Well, hi. First of all, I'm honoured uh, to be sitting at this table. I've sat at many tables with you two over the years, and this is is a, a feels the best that it's ever felt. Um so like I, like Jack said, uh, we've known each other, all of us, for 25 plus years. I want to, you know, acknowledge, first of all, that I, I do have white privilege. Um, and I'm very, I'm acutely aware of that. I, I have two biracial children. So I, I kind of see, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of white privilege in my life through, through their eyes, which is such a gift. Um, I have worked uh, for oh, 23 years uh, alongside some of the coolest people that uh, have taught me so much about myself and about the world. Uh, I've, I've worked for many years with people with dual diagnosis and uh, I've also worked, uh, you know, uh, for the Alex, which is an organization here in Calgary that uh, works with people who are experiencing homelessness. So I did some case management there and housing and uh, I've done really cool community development projects uh, such as uh, I ran a video dating service for adults with disabilities um, back in the day. That was a lot of fun, advocated for the sexual rights and wellness of people with developmental disabilities. Um, I've had a, you know, I've done lots of crisis work lots of uh, uh, sitting and holding space with people in their most vulnerable moments, uh, which has taught me so much about myself and about uh, how how cruel this world can be at times. Anyways, uh, oh, to go back, my pronouns are her and she. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you need anything else there, Jax, about... No, we're just really happy to have you join us, and you're going to be jumping oh, in and out of questions. Sure, I am. And this house that we're... Right. The stage for our, our podcast. Uh, we are social distancing. I'd like to, to just throw that out there. Uh, this house is um, in a, one of the first communities of Calgary. Uh, it was built in 1910. Um, it has... Uh, it it was built by a father and son who were carpenters. It is a beautiful home. Um, and after uh, the son actually passed 
um, there was a, a two gentlemen, a gay couple that that moved in and completely and lovingly restored this home to its its former glory. Uh, and then some dear friends of mine uh, bought the home uh, from those folks. And so there's only been, uh, you know, three owners of this house. So it is well loved. It is uh, it is in a community. We live next door to three of the uh, uh, first houses in Calgary, actually. Uh, they're the CP rail houses that uh, the folks who, who built the railroad in Calgary uh, actually lived in those houses. So it's a community uh, that is rich in history and uh, big, beautiful trees and lots of colorful folks. We live very close to downtown. Uh, the community is is Ramsey. And the house survived the first pandemic. This house survived the first pandemic and it is definitely surviving the second. So there's some history for you. Yeah. Montana, we move differently through our stages of healing. We can take a few steps forward and take many steps back. How are you able to inspire, motivate people in ways that help them feel like this journey is worth the hard, hard work? Well, again, that's kind of a, I like to work with people at an individual level. So um, for some, it's more of a struggle than others to, and it's quite honestly, like that's not something I feel like I can convince people of. So um, I often go back to, uh, learning from my beautiful colleagues at the Narrative Collective um, and Tom Carlson said once, uh, you know, when we praise people for what they've been through and what they've done, that can fall flat. And it often does. I can tell you how amazing you are and how wonderful you are and how resilient you are. And that can fall flat after people hear that a lot. They don't feel that way. So in my work, um, it is really important for me to find ways by posing very, uh, by being open with curiosity, being really curious about the ways in which they've come through things already, how they have managed, how they have succeeded, how they have done that throughout their lives, the knowledge they've gained and the knowledge they didn't even know that they, that they had uh, in coming through their, their uh, experiences. So, uh, by doing that, people are often able to find that praise within themselves. So if I ask the question, how, how are you able to do that? How did you learn that? If you had to become a parent to your little sister at the age of five, and you had no parents to teach you how to do that, how did you do it? Where did that come from? And so often that incites people, this, this kind of uh, belief that, you know, they have this knowledge inside of them. There's so much instinctually that they do. And then in that, they find resilience within themselves. I hope that's an answer to your question. But yeah, I, I think that the motivation comes from within uh, as soon as they see how just how powerful they can be without me actually overtly stating it. In, in our last podcast, well, second last one, I guess the one we did with Ellen, who's a paramedic, we talked a lot about that people, especially people experiencing homelessness or vulnerably housed, 
they feel often that they've been mistreated by systems and services. And a lot of people who might have tried to get therapy, but it didn't work for them, all when that when that happens, it becomes uh, either I'm not successful of, of that or I can't work with these folks because of the way they've treated me. How do you get people to feel comfortable enough to trust you to share those stories? Authenticity, vulnerability, and um, validation. So yes, you've been mistreated. Uh, I don't expect people to trust me. I don't go in there with that with that attitude at all. In fact, I think people should probably not trust me, um, especially people that come from diverse backgrounds, uh, people that have been mistreated by by white folk like myself. Um, I don't. If they're coming in from uh, all different cultures, they don't have to trust me, and I don't. I don't expect that they will but I will do my very best to be vulnerable. And sometimes I, I believe that I kind of uh, break some, you know, not clearly stated rules about- uh, Yes, break those rules, Rebel Rouser. Ah, do what you need to do so someone gets exactly. where they need to go, right? Well, we, yeah, we often talk about acts of resistance, right? And so I use intersectional mm -hmm. fem, uh, feminism in my work to talk about these acts of resistance and how people have 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 shown this within their lives and how they have done this, how they're they're here to see me for help, but I'm just there to bring that out, and they don't have to trust that I'm going to do that. But by being very um, authentic uh, with myself, knowing that you know, putting myself on a level that I know, I know nothing more than you do. And I want to, again, listen and hear your story. And um, if you choose to trust me or not, you can. But I think in a story, I, I often say to the people that I work with that their stories are safe here and they're sacred. So I will keep them. I say that a lot to the kids. <laughs> That's lovely. That, your, that, your, that your secrets are safe with me, you know, as long as they're not infringing on those, those um, limits to, to, you know, they might self-harm or anything like that. As long as they're not imposing on those, their secrets are safe here. And uh, I don't want to exploit that in any way. And I, I think we were going to talk a little bit more about that, about friendship and connection and being each other's secret keepers, because you need a place to offload your pain and you need to know that there's someone that's got big ears and a big heart that can take that on. When people are at the beginning stages of doing therapy with you and um, you find that they struggle with self-worth, how do you find that you can help people connect to get back to being into self and finding their worth, the, that they're worthy, their worthness? Worthiness. Um, <laughs> That's a thick word, worthiness. Worthiness. Uh, it's a big word in a lot of ways. So mm -hmm. uh, I can't give a statistic in my own work because I don't really track these kinds of things. But what I can do is say that in almost every person that I see, especially in women, uh, worthiness is it, what it all comes down to. And so I talk, I bring feminism into my work in every, at every turn, uh, especially with youth, even especially with males. Um, we look at how patriarchal structures and colonial structures have you know, diminish the worth of women. And especially now in the, in the age of social media, um, we see this a lot more uh, worth being determined by likes or um, worth being diminished by these, these structures of, of patriarchy that, that 
still subjugate women in every area, in every way. I find that some of the, the turning points, uh, these unique outcomes that, I, that we call them in narrative therapy happen when people are able to embrace the idea of feminism. Um, because for so long, it's been such a radical thing, right? And, and radical means change. Radical means we need to think about these things in a different way. And so I do that. Uh, I, I help people to do that by questions. The same as I've been talking about this throughout this conversation is by curiosity. Where did you learn these things? What do these things tell you? And um, with youth, I use social media. We're not going backwards, we're going forward. So what can we do in our social media presence to uh, make sure we're, we're diversifying our news feeds, we're diversifying what we're looking at. We're not looking at this idea of, of beauty as being the standard. We're looking at all different people. We're using intersectional feminism at all levels to make sure that people are, uh, even men, not, not just women, I'm not just talking about women, but at all levels, um, using these ideas to create change. Due to the wonderful, engaging, and informative conversation we had today with Montana and Lisa, it has provided us the opportunity to make this into a two-part episode. We hope you enjoy it and can join us for both episodes. Please join us for the second half of this conversation, which will be available in our feed in a few weeks.